Uh, we're we're going to be in Ephesians 5 today as we continue looking at love and what it means to love the most important people in our lives, what that looks like. Practically speaking, as we've already seen, love is not a feeling. There can be feelings involved, and there probably should be, but that's not what it's about. It's about what we do. And I want to talk for just a moment about competitiveness. Competitiveness, believe it or not, can actually be a good thing. I read about a study this week. They took 800 students, and they put them into three groups. The first group, they just told them, hey, go exercise. Second group, they told them, I want you to exercise, but here's a partner we're giving you to be there to encourage you. Basically, somebody to say, hey, you can do it. Come on, don't give up. The third group was given a partner, but the partner wasn't there to encourage. The partner was there to challenge. The partner was there to say, hey, run as fast as me. I'm beating you. Hey, you lift more than me. Come on, I, I'm beating you here. The, the partner was not an encouragement, was an was a obnoxious person, right? So guess which group got into the best shape of all? The competitive group did. Yeah, the encouragement's great, but in terms of exercise, if you really want to get into shape, be around somebody who will compete with you, who will, who will challenge you. So that's good. On the other hand, competition can cause some problems. So here, here's a little true confession from my life. When uh, I was in seminary, I worked as a youth minister at a little country church out west of Fort Worth. And when Vacation Bible School came along, they gave me the job of recreation because what else is a youth minister good for than playing around with kids, right? So yeah, you do recreation. So one day, my idea for recreation was let's play Red Rover. I hadn't played Red Rover since I was a little kid. Remember Red Rover? We all stand in lines holding hands and we face each other. Red Rover, Red Rover, let Alan come over and little Alan comes running and tries to break the chain, right? And if he breaks the chain, he gets to take me back with him. But if he doesn't break the chain, he becomes part of our chain. And you go until the other team is no more. So we're playing Red Rover, and, and I'm on one team just to make sure everything goes well. And there's this little girl on the other team, and it's been a long time. It's been over 20 years, so I can't remember her name. But let's just call her Muffy. I don't know. So uh, Muffy, you got to picture Muffy. She's, she's like seven or eight years old, and she's got this long brown hair, these really, really beautiful brown eyes, um, and she's wearing this little white lacy dress. You know, the kind that when she spins, it kind of balloons out, it kind of twirls, you know, real, real cute little girl. And so our team said, hey, let's call her. So it was like, Red Rover, Red Rover, let Muffy come over. And so she takes off running. And you just picture her as she's running. And those little arms are pumping, little tongue sticking out the side of her mouth, and you know, hair bouncing, little, little skirt bouncing as she runs. It was just the most adorable thing you've ever seen. And then I realized she's running right at me. She's running at me. Now, here's, here's what adults do in that situation. All of you know. Here's what adults do. An adult says, oh, Muffy, you beat me, Right? That's what adults do. <laughs> but I'm a man, okay? And, and so for some reason, I decided she's not getting through. There's no way. And here's how, here's how my friend, my friend was the music minister there, and, and he came out right at that moment. And he said, yeah, I was watching. I was watching this cute little girl, and she's running towards you. And I look over at you, and I noticed you're right here. And, and he said, and I noticed this little muscle right here kind of popped out. And he said, oh, no oh, this is not going to be good. Now, so she hit me, her chin hit my wrist, right? And 
she just turned a little somersault in the air and landed on her head. So picture her landing head first and the little skirt kind of fluttering down. And I'm immediately on my knees beside her pleading, please get up, please, please, please speak to me, please. And she was fine. But that's an example of competition isn't always a good thing. Competitiveness can be destructive, and especially in a relationship. A relationship where you are competitive with one of your very favorite people, one of the most important people in your life. If you're in competition with that person instead of in love with that person, then it can be devastating. I don't mean when you go out and you're exercising together, you're playing golf together, you're bowling together. That's fine if you want to beat each other at those things. I'm talking about in life. When, when your relationship becomes a zero-sum game where I have to win and you have to lose, where, where we dig in and I am not going to give in on this particular thing. It's sort of like in basketball when your team shoots and you and a teammate are both going for the rebound. You ever see this happen in basketball? Both of you go for the rebound and you cancel each other out, right? Because you're both going for it and the ball pops free and the other team gets it. And that's what happens in too many relationships. We're so much in competition for each other, neither one of us wins. When the truth is, both of us can win. That's the way love should work. So let me give you some examples of what it looks like in a relationship when you're in competition with the person instead of in love with the person. First of all, there's a lot of debate in these kinds of relationships. A lot of arguments, a lot of, I need to, I need to set a, I need to put my foot down, I need to draw a line in the sand, and it's going to be this way or else. And I can remember when my wife and I were first married, we had a big argument over how to fold the towels. And I can even remember, you know, being 21, 22 years old and thinking as I'm yelling, thinking, why am I doing this? I don't even care how the towels get folded. Frankly, I didn't care that the towels got folded. I mean, she could have put them in a pile in the corner and I'd have been fine. But for some reason, I was like, she is not going to have her way. Not about this. No, I am going to fight over this. Guess who won? Yeah, to this day, we fold towels the way she wanted to fold them, right? So, I mean, it, it was stupid. It was ridiculous. But that's what happens when you're in competition with someone. You argue over silly things, things that don't matter. Some things do matter, by the way. I do want to say, even when you love someone, there are some things you need to speak up for yourself on. And we'll talk about that later on in this series. But I guarantee you, 95% of the stuff we argue about doesn't matter but we're in competition. We don't want the other person to get it. Um, we threaten or we bribe. If you do this, I'm going to make you pay. Or if you'll just do this, then I'll finally give you what you've been asking for. I'll finally do what you want me to do. I'll make it worth your while. We guilt trip. We compare when we're in competition with somebody. But mom, his parents let him go to the party, right? And what do we say? I'm not his parents. Or you know, it's funny, uh, John's wife doesn't seem to mind how often he goes hunting. It must be nice. We say things like that when we're in competition because what we're out to do is to get what we want. Um, we strategize. You know, I know that if I ask her in this way, she'll probably say yes. If I use these words, if I avoid bringing up this, then I'll get my way. Or the opposite side of that strategy, you know, I'm ready, I'm ready. The next time he pulls that number, here's what I'm going to do. The next time he pushes that button, here's how I'm going to respond. We sit and we fantasize about what we're going to do because we're in competition and we keep score. We always keep score when we're in competition with someone. 
That's the last time I'm ever going to put up with that, we say. Or, why should I go with you to your parents' house this weekend? You didn't go with me to my parents' house last weekend. Why, why should I give you something you didn't give to me? So all these things, all these ideas, I mean, that's just relationships, right? That's how we think relationships work. That's what we've been trained to think. But that's not the way God intends for our relationships to be. Husbands and wives shouldn't be in competition with each other. Parents and children shouldn't be in competition with each other. Friends shouldn't be in competition with each other. They should be in love with each other. They should be a blessing to one another. How does that work? That's what Ephesians 5 is really about. Now, I know, I know Revelation 5 is often seen as, um, as the women must submit chapter. Okay, If you know the Bible, you probably know that's where it says that. And we're going to talk about that. Let me just say three things real quick. Ephesians 5 talks about a lot more than marriage, and we're going to today. Secondly, when it talks about submission, it's not just talking to women. Number three, submission doesn't mean what you probably think. All right? So we're going to start with chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, because that's when Paul goes, does his transition as he's writing this letter to the Ephesian Christians. You know, those letters in the early church, they were basically Paul's way of saying, I can't be there to be your pastor. I'm going to tell you everything I think through the Holy Spirit's guidance you need to know to live the way you need to live. So in Ephesians 5, he says, chapter, one, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So that's Paul's transition. He's been talking about one thing, now he's, going to, now he's going to move into the area of our relationships. And his instruction is walk in love. Let everything you do be done out of love. Again, not meaning that everything you do is infused with this sentimental notion of, oh, isn't she darling? Oh, I just adore him. Nobody can do that. But everything you do is done out of a motive of love and not competition. So we're going to skip ahead to uh, the, the controversial part, all right? So look at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now skip down to verse 33 because Paul goes into husbands next and, and goes off on that uh, for a while, but then he comes back at the end, verse 33, and says, however, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, what do we think of when we hear the word submit? We immediately think of losing. I mean, you may not watch UFC, but that's a term for there. It's, it's a submission hold, right? Somebody gets you in a hole that you can't get out of, and you're in too much pain, so what do you do? You tap out. I'm done. I lose. I give up. And that's how we see our relationships. How, 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 what do I need to do to stand strong and not lose in this? I don't want to submit. I don't want to give in. I don't want to lose. But here, it clearly means something else. Submission, in the way Paul uses it, doesn't mean losing. It means putting the relationship ahead of yourself. So I want you to notice again verse 21. Verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then it says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. I want to I propose to you, and I believe this to be true, that verse 21 is the theme verse 
for, the, for everything we're going to read all the way through verse 9 of chapter 6. Paul is saying, in all your relationships, practice submission. In all your relationships, put that person, put your relationship with that person ahead of your own needs, your own desires. It's get out of the mindset of competition and get into the mindset of submission, of you're more important than I am. We are more important than what I want right now. So what I want to show you is, and again, verse 22 is controversial. I can remember, true confession, the first wedding I ever did, 25 years old, I wasn't even graduated from seminary yet, wasn't a pastor yet, couple that uh, I grew up with asked me to do their wedding, so I go back to my hometown. Guess what passage I decided to preach on in my first wedding ever? Yeah, this one, because I was an arrogant idiot. Um, and I thought, well, everybody's going to know it once I explain it. I've been to school. So I got up and I explained it. And, and it was really funny because there was a, another a young woman that I'd gone to high school with, not the bride, but another young lady I went to high school with. And she came up and she said, why did you preach on that? And I said, well, I just felt led. And she said, I hate that passage. And I said, well, what did you think of what I said of it? And she said, well, that made sense, but I still don't like it. The reason we don't like it is because we see the word submit and we think losing. But that's not what it means. In fact, if you were to read this in Greek, keep in mind, Paul didn't write in verses. He was writing a letter. We came along hundreds of years later and put verses to it. So if you read this in Greek, here's how it would actually read. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Paul is not making a special case of wives. He's not saying in everything the wife has to lose to her husband. You know what, ladies, I'll be honest, I wish that's what it meant. I really do. I'd love to be able to tell my wife, who just walked into the room, that she has to lose to me in everything. I would love to tell her that. But that's not what it means. Because think about this for a moment. Women in the ancient world, when Paul was writing, women had second-class citizenship. Women were seen as property by their husbands by many, in many cultures, especially Roman culture, but in some, to some extent Jewish culture as well. Women did not have the right of divorce. Men did. Uh, you know, men had all the rights. Here comes Christianity, this Christian message that says, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. All are one in Jesus Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Here's Jesus Unlike all other rabbis, he's got women followers following along with him, some of whom funded his ministry. He decides on Resurrection Sunday, he's risen. Peter and John come running into the empty tomb. They look around, they see nothing. They leave, then Mary Magdalene comes, and then Jesus walks up and says, hi, Mary. Why didn't he reveal himself to Peter and John? Because he wanted her to be the first. Jesus had this unique, for that time, unique view that says, a woman's just as important as a man. And I can use a woman just like I can use a man. And so uh, this revolutionized everything. So imagine being a, a young woman, a young wife in that culture, and you're mistreated, and you're look, overlooked, and you're seen as just a vehicle for producing sons for your husband. And now along comes this message that says, no, you have a unique place in my plan. You are one in a, in a jillion. You are created, custom designed by me to accomplish a purpose. And women are just liberated by this. 
But what Paul was worried about was that they would say, oh, well, since I'm a daughter of the king, I don't need to worry about this husband anymore. That's, not, that's my old life. Now I'm someone brand new. And Paul's point is, and he says this in other places too, he says, listen, if your husband's not a believer, don't leave him. You can, be used, you can be used by God to bring him to Christ. So don't leave him. If he leaves you, I don't hold you responsible, but you stay faithful to him. So here, that's what he's saying. He's saying, continue to submit to your husband. Continue to put him ahead of yourself. Just because you're a new believer doesn't mean you, you're free from these relationships. This is an opportunity for you to, to show Christ to your husband. Submit to him as you do to the Lord. Now, when it gets into this whole idea of headship, this is, this is where uh, a lot of uh, Christian husbands get all tangled up because they read, for the husband is the head of the wife, is the Christ is the head of the church. And they think, well, wait a second. I'm missing out. I'm not calling the shots and I'm supposed to be the head. That's not what headship means, actually. Because look at the analogy it uses. It uses the analogy of Christ to his people. How did Jesus act when he was here in the flesh? Did he ever walk around saying, I'm Jesus and you're going to do what I say or else? Hey, disciples, you better listen to me. Hey, crowds, you better follow me or I'm going to strike you all dead. No, Christ did the opposite. As head, Christ laid down his life for the people who were sinners, who disrespected him, who got in his way, who frustrated him sometimes, he still gave himself up for them. And that's the point Paul goes on to make when he talks to the husband. So headship doesn't mean having the last word. It means taking responsibility. It means I will do whatever I have to do to help you become what you're created to be. And I'm going to get into more of that in just a moment. But notice in verse 33 when it says, you know, Paul's trying to sum all of this up. And he says, so husbands, love your wives. We'll get into that in a moment. And the wife must respect her husband. Why does he use that term respect? I don't know. I'm not Paul, and I'm certainly not the Holy Spirit, but here's what I think because of what I know about me and about other men. The respect that a woman has for her husband, or lack thereof, has so much to do with how he sees himself. There's nobody on earth, and, and your husband probably won't tell you this, and he probably goes to great pains to, to act like he's too strong to be affected by any of this, but there's no one on earth who impacts his own emotional stability, his own self-image, his own confidence in life more than you do as a wife. If you're married, you hold his soul in your hands, not to the extent that you can keep him from heaven, but to the extent that you can keep him from becoming all that Christ created him to be, or you can help him be more than he ever thought he could, depending on how you treat him. Your respect, you know, last week we looked at what is one of the five needs of men in marriage? Admiration. They need to know that they have somebody in their corner who actually believes in them. So that's where that submission comes in. If you're in competition with your husband, if he is an impediment to you getting what you want because of his personality or because of his habits or because of the things that are important to him, think about what that does to his sense of self-worth. That drives him lower than he can go. He feels defensive. He feels beaten down. He doesn't want to come home because home is not a happy place. Home is a place where he gets, he gets his tail kicked every night. <laughs> one way or another. But on the other hand, if, if home is a place, if, if you're in your relationship with him, he knows I'm going to get built back up when I'm around her because she believes in me, doesn't always tell me what I want to hear, 
doesn't always say nothing but nice things to me, but I know deep down inside she's on my side. I can count on her. She believes in me. She builds me up. She's going to have my back. That is so powerful. Never forget that. That's how mutual submission looks in marriage. And then he gets on to husbands, and this is where it gets rough, okay? Because he didn't say this to wives. He said it to husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, very few of us will ever have the opportunity to physically lay down our lives for our wives. You know, we can always envision those scenarios where someone's holding her hostage and we go storming in with, you know, a two-by-four or whatever. That's probably not going to happen. I hope it doesn't. But we do have opportunities every day to put her above ourselves. That's what submission looks like for a husband. It's getting over your pride. It's getting over, I have to be in control. I have to have my way and saying, You know, God put me into her life to help her become who she was created to be. Notice that's what it says. It says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's a beautiful thing right there because it says that Jesus' gift to himself is us. That ought to make you feel good. But that also is a word to us as husbands You know that old saying, behind every great man, there's a supportive woman or whatever, and an astonished mother-in-law or whatever it says? That's a joke. Y'all laugh at that point. So that's that's not in the Bible, you understand. Yes, a, a supportive woman behind a man can help him great, but can help him become great. But as a husband, your wife is not just your helper. She has a purpose in God's plan too. And if you're a good husband, your job is to help bring that out in her, to encourage that, to pray for her, to, uh, to give her everything she needs to equip her to become the woman God created her to be. And then look at verses 30, uh, 31 and 32. Verses 31 and 32 say, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What? I think what he's saying is the purpose of marriage, y'all listen, purpose of marriage isn't to make us happy. If we're happy in marriage, that's great. It should be a byproduct of a godly marriage. But the purpose of marriage is to display to the world God's love. Remember, we talked about it on, in worship service. What is the image Christ gives us of his return. It's the wedding feast. It's the lamb taking his bride. Our marriages are supposed to show the world the love of God. So the way it works is the world sees a woman who doesn't compete with her husband, but instead submits to him and gives, gives him everything he needs so that he can, he can become the man he was created to be. And the husband doesn't insist on his way and, and try to be the boss. And, and instead he's He gets over himself. He gives up his pride to lay himself down for her, to make her into the woman God created her to be. And the world looks at that when it happens and says, how do you do this? Especially when they see us stumble and struggle, and yet we still hold on to each other and we build into each other in this way. And they say, where does this come from? And it points straight to the love of God and Jesus Christ. There's a book that I want you to read sometime. I don't have time in this series to really cover it, but it's called Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. If there's one marriage book, if you can only read one marriage book, that's the one I would recommend. 
And you might be surprised if you read Sacred Marriage, it doesn't have to do with going on dates and how to rekindle your feelings and all that. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but Sacred Marriage is all about how God uses the marriage relationship to shape our character. And once you look at it that way, then you realize, hey, even the struggles we go through, even the times when we don't agree, even when we're arguing about how to fold the towels, right? God is taking that and shaping me and shaping her. And we're becoming stronger believers because of this marriage. So that's your, that's your commercial. So that's, that's marriage. That's submission within marriage. Now, how does it work with parents and children? Verse 6 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So submission within the parent-child relationship, obviously we get that children are to submit to their parents. This involves obedience. Notice he actually uses the word obey. He doesn't use that word in marriage. And that's why I don't use that word in in the marriage vows. I don't say that the wife needs to obey her husband because that's not what it says in scripture. It does say children must obey their parents. And it says there's a promise involved. That's in the 10 commandments. Just for clarification, it doesn't mean that if you're an obedient child and you honor your parents, you're gonna live a long life. Because the promise wasn't given to individuals, it was given to the nation of Israel. What he was saying was, okay, Israel, you're moving into the promised land, you're creating a new nation that has never existed before. As part of your foundation, as part of your constitution, so to speak, if children in your society will honor their parents, will obey them when they're little, as they get older, they'll give honor to their moms and dads. If you have a society like that, you're gonna last a long time in this land. If you don't, If you've got children who rebel against their parents, if you've got older adults who disregard their older parents, then your society will fall apart. That's what he's saying. You'll live a long life in the land I've given you if children honor their parents. But then on the other hand, in verse four, he says, fathers do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I want you to know, Paul wrote the word fathers, but he meant parents. He's speaking to dads, but he's speaking to all of us. He's saying parents are, notice, he doesn't say, your number one job is to keep those kids in line. Your number one job is to make sure they do right. Although there are scriptures that urge discipline, but instead his focus here is don't exasperate your children. What does that word mean? In some Bibles, it's translated provoke uh, or embitter. It basically means don't make them mad. Now, that doesn't mean our kids should never be mad at us. Frankly, if your kids are never mad at you, you're not doing your job, right? Can we agree on that, those of us who are parents? Yeah, you're not your kid's best friend, okay? You're not the cool dad, you're not the cool mom. Don't do that. But making them mad shouldn't be our goal. Irritating them, putting them in their place, so to speak, shouldn't be our goal. And we do that sometimes as parents, especially as our kids get older, but even when they're little. We, we, we kind of get determined to stomp their dreams so that they know we're in charge, right? We get into competition with our kids instead of encouraging them. So, for example, this is just one example. Your child wants to know, why can't I do this? And it's so easy to just say, because I said so. Because I'm the parent and you're the child and you do what I said. And that's a good way to embitter your kids. 
But a better way is to say, let me tell you a story. When I was your age, I used to do exactly what you're doing, and here's what happened to me as a result. Or I had a friend whose parents let him do that, and here's what happened as a result. Or here's what I know about the world that you don't know. I know that you think, I mean, you're 13 right now or whatever, and you think you know everything, but let me just tell you what I know about the world, and here's what I'm trying to protect you from. Will that always work? No, but it's a lot better than because I told you so. It's not about establishing authority. It's about encouraging them, encouraging them in the right direction. Do I always do that perfectly? Good grief. There are so many times when God hits me with this verse and says, stop exasperating your kids. You're not in competition with them. But instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. What does that mean? It means that it's not Kathy Talbot's or Christian Nance's job to introduce your kids to Christ and to disciple your kids in the way of Jesus. It's not my job. It's not their life group leaders. It's your job. This is one job we cannot outsource. If my son wants to learn guitar, I don't have to be the one that teaches him. There are people who are good at that. If my son wanted to learn how to throw a curveball, I was never a pitcher. I couldn't teach him, but somebody in this room probably could. I could outsource that. If my daughter wanted to learn Japanese, I sent her to college to learn that. I can't teach her that. But it's my job to teach her about Jesus. It's my job to teach him about God. It's your job as well. In fact, you're not going to like this, but in all these things, what it's really saying is you're a pastor. Husbands, you're, you're, the, you're your wife's most important pastor because it's your job to encourage her in her faith. Wives, you're, her, you're your, your husband's pastor. It's, it's your job to build him up in the Lord and help him grow into Christ. As parents, you're your children's pastor. You're supposed to create a home where faith is most likely. And you might say, well, I can't make those decisions for them. What if they decide wrong? Welcome to my world. I can't make y'all follow the Lord. I can't make y'all obey him. I can't make one single person walk the aisle and get saved. All I can do is tell you what God has put on my heart and pray for you and encourage and do what I can. And that's your job as parents in the lives of your children. And that's your job in your marriage to, to pastor those people, uh, to pastor the people who've brought, who God's brought into your life. And then we get into slaves and masters. Now, When he starts talking about slaves and masters, please understand, slavery in the Roman Empire was huge. I mean, there was some some estimates say as much as a third of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Slavery in Rome was very different than it was in this country. It wasn't racially based. Um, It was often just an economic system. It was, if you were a poor person, you could beg or you could become a slave. Uh, Others were slaves because they'd been captured in war. Others were slaves because they grew up that way. It wasn't racially based. It was also not a condition where slaves did all the bad jobs. There were doctors who were slaves. There were clerks. There were managers of offices who were slaves. Um, So you could be a slave and live a pretty good life. You could also be a slave and work in the mines and live a terrible life. So it wasn't wasn't like it is here. Sometimes people ask, why didn't Paul and the other apostles argue for abolition? And I always say, because they weren't there to start a revolution. Can you imagine if... Paul and the other apostles had said, slaves, leave your masters right now. And a third of the Roman Empire had obeyed them. The bloodbath that would have ensued. Instead, 
Through the authority of the Holy Spirit and the God's wisdom, they sowed the seeds that led to abolition. They taught there's neither slave nor free. They taught we're all one in Christ Jesus. Paul writes to Philemon and says, hey, your slave escaped from you? Bring him back and, and make him your equal now. So they were sowing the seeds that eventually led to freedom. So when you read this, don't just go, oh, well, it's about slavery. Um, it doesn't apply to us today. Instead, I would argue that we read this in terms of master, uh, bosses and employees. So everyday work. How do you relate to your employer? So as, uh, having said that, verse 5 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. His instruction to slaves, slaves is longer than his instruction to masters because there were more slaves in the church than there were masters. But you're going to see in a moment his instruction to masters is pretty strong. So his instruction to us as employees is don't be in competition with your employer. Serve them well. They ought to be able to rely on you. If you're a believer in Christ, they ought to be able to say, I don't know if every Christian is this way, but that one really works hard. And not just when I'm watching him. I know he is really doing a good job. That brings glory to Christ. And Paul knew that would bring some of these masters to salvation. And then to masters, he says, Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, you can't tell me that Paul didn't have a sense of humor because he says, don't threaten your slaves. Now I'm about to threaten you. Don't threaten your slaves. You know God's watching. And he'll, he is not into favoritism. You're the boss. You can do whatever you want. Nobody's going to stop you but it won't always be that way. Someday you'll have to give an accounting for the way you treated your employees. For those in this room who have employer, employees, if you are in a position of authority at your work and people work under you, ask yourself the question, the way that I treat them, is that drawing them closer to Christ or is that making them angry and making them bitter? If I have conflicts with my employees, am I in the right? Have I tried to make things right? Have I tried to treat them in a way that they know they're valued? Because God sees. And you may be able, you may be able to get away with paying them less than they deserve. You may be able to get away with uh, losing your temper on them and, and taking things out on them. You may be able to get away with treating them in a way that embitters them now, but God will call you to an account. By the way, all of us have employees, you know, because all of us eat at restaurants and we have a waiter who comes and waits on us. We have people who do our hair. We have people who teach our children. We have nurses uh, that, that see to us when we go to the doctor. Everybody, we have people who serve us. How do we treat those people? Do we treat them with dignity? Do we, do we glorify God in the way we treat them? I mean, sad to say, I've heard plenty of people who work in food service who say, boy, the worst day of the week to work is Sunday because those Christians get out of church and they're awful. That just ought to break your heart because it ought to be the opposite. It ought to be, boy, I can't wait till 1230 on Sunday because those Christians really give good tips and they treat me kindly and it's, it's going to be good. God sees and God knows. In case you haven't noticed, 
The mission of our church is to make disciples. The mission of our church is to not just tell people about Jesus, but to see them grow up into his image. And isn't that interesting? That's our job in all of our relationships here. Your job, if you're married, is to disciple your spouse. Your job, if you're a parent, number one job more than anything else, is to disciple your kids. Your job, if you're an employer, is to disciple your employees as best you can, even if it's only indirectly, even if because of the constraints of your workplace, you can't directly tell them about Christ. You can disciple them through example. Your job as an employee is to be such a good influence in your workplace, to be such a good employee, your superiors are drawn to Christ. Our number one job is to lead people to him. Isn't it genius how it all works together? God knows what he's doing. Be in love with the people God's brought into your life, not in competition with them. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for not being in competition with us, but laying down your life for us. Lord, if it was a competition, we'd lose. But instead, you chose to give yourself up so we could win. Lord, let that be a lesson to us. Help us to see that when we sacrifice for those around us and when we put them first, we both win. And let us not think of it in terms of me getting my way or her getting her way. It's so hard to get out of that habit. Lord, teach us to have patience with each other. Teach us to take the long view. And Lord, where we know we need to repent, I pray that we would be humble enough to do it. Lord, we pray for healing in relationships. We pray for salvation to come because the world sees a a difference in us. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray all these things. Amen.